Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a new generation of politicians challenging the old in the form of an early challenge to Senator Dianne Feinstein, who is 89 years old, but has not announced whether she's running again in 2024 by Congressman Katie Porter, who has gained popularity and unusually large amounts of campaign funds as a result of her grilling of prevaricating corporate CEOs and other officials. Joining us to look into this rush to line up to challenge Feinstein, which includes Barbara Lee, Adam Schiff and others, is Alexander Salmon, a politics writer at Slate, who has previously written for Mother Jones, The New Republic and The American Prospect. We will discuss his latest article at Slate, the California feeding frenzy of Dianne Feinstein's Senate seat just started off with a bang. Then we'll assess the brazen hypocrisy of the new House Republicans who decry deficits, but whose first act is to add $100 billion to the deficit in what is becoming a GOP tradition from Reagan to Bush Sr. to Bush Jr. and Trump, all of whom ran up the deficit and the debt. Joining us is Thomas Kahn, who worked in Congress for 33 years, where he served as staff director and staff counsel of the House Budget Committee and played a critical role on a number of budget negotiations, including Simpson-Bowles, the Biden Talks, the Super Committee, the successful balanced budget agreement in 1997, and the enactment of the Affordable Care Act. He is a fellow at the Center for the Study of Congress and the Presidency at American University and a partner at the Cormac Group, and we will discuss his article at the Los Angeles Times House Republicans' first order of business balloon the $31 trillion national debt. Then finally, with a six-year-old boy in custody in Virginia for shooting his school teacher, we will look into many other examples of young children getting hold of guns and shooting classmates and others and speak with Joshua Horwitz, the Dana Fiedler Professor of the Practice and co-director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Solutions. He has spent more than three decades working on gun violence prevention issues and is the author of Guns, Democracy and the Insurrectionist Idea. And joining us now is Alexander Salmon, who is a politics writer at Slate, who has previously written for Mother Jones, The New Republic and The American Prospect. And he has an article at Slate, The California Feeding Frenzy for Dianne Feinstein's Senate seat just started off with a bang. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alexander Salmon. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And Katie Porter, who is a fairly prominent and popular uh, congresswoman, although she hasn't been in Congress very long, and she just had a squeaker re-election since she'd been redistricted down in Orange County. She has jumped the gun, I take it, in announcing her bid to run for the seat that is occupied by Senator Dianne Feinstein, uh, who has not said she's stepping down. So... It's starting to look a little bit like it's going to get a little nasty. Is that putting it mildly? <laughs> I think so. I mean, it, we, as you mentioned, right, yeah, uh, Feinstein has not, not announced that she's stepping down. We're 20 months away from this election. Um, already, I think uh, Barbara Lee as well, the congresswoman from Oakland, has begun uh, telling people, in, at least internally, that she's going to be running for this seat. Um, and Adam Schiff, the congressman from, from Burbank, um, there are a lot of people who really want this seat uh, and have been eyeing it for um, more than a, more than a little while. So it's it's definitely going to be one of these 
very, very hotly contested races. I think you know, one that we're going to see basically nonstop for the next two years. Well, already the fact that, you know, Noah's Ark is happening outside my door here in California. Already Adam Schiff suggested it was a little unseemly that Katie Porter made this announcement in the midst of the flooding in California. And, and he then turned around and offered up a, an appeal for donations to flood victims, which, of course, means he harvests their names and addresses and emails, etc., for fundraising purposes later. Barbara Lee has also said, even though she's told her colleagues in Congress that she's uh, thinking of running or intends to run for Feinstein's seat, that it's not a good time because of the floods. So what, <laughs> I guess this is, again, a kind of rehearsal, is it, uh, for things to come? What kind of damage do you think Katie Porter's done to herself by jumping the gun and announcing in the midst of these historic floods in California? Right. I mean, it's one of those things you almost have to laugh because it's like this level of jockeying at this point in the race is it, it, it's kind of hard to believe almost. Right. It's like, you know, we're well over a year and a half until anyone's going to cast a vote in this race. It's really hard to imagine that anyone's going to go to the polls thinking, well, I liked Katie Porter, but she did announce during that uh, heavy rainstorm uh, and flooding that we had a year and a half ago which makes me question her judgment. I, you know, it, it's, I'm surprised it's already come to this. I mean, I, I think it will get more and more uh, this way in the coming months, but um, I mean, could, could it really impact her negatively in any way? No, I, I don't think so. Um, I think what you're seeing is a little bit of frustration actually from the shift camp um, that she went first and is now getting the fundraising advantage of, of being first in, in the first 24 hours since she put out this announcement, she's already raised well over a million dollars um, and Schiff, because he's a, you know, he's a party loyalist. He's someone who's close to Feinstein and has been for a number of years. He can't get out of the blocks until she steps down. And so, you know, this is, there's money, uh, from these, particularly from these small dollar democratic donors, uh, that is getting hoovered up by Porter now and, and may well be going to, to Barbara Lee in, in another day or so, given what, uh, the conversations that are going around Washington now, uh, and Schiff is, is stuck, stuck in the starting blocks for the time being. So, I think there's frustration, and I'm surprised to see it actually articulated like this so so early on. Well, Katie Porter is quite a prolific fundraiser. I mean, she's very popular on MSNBC for her whiteboard and holding corporate witnesses to account and making them squirm. And uh, she's a protege, of course, of Senator Elizabeth Warren. And she's raised, according to your article, Alex, she's raised $24 million just during the most recent election cycle. How much do you think she's got left over? Yeah, she, yeah so she's an incredible fundraiser. I mean, this is what's interesting about this raise, too, is, is they're, they're some of the very best fundraising talents in, in the Democratic Party are going to be running for this seat. And uh, Katie Porter is certainly one of them. Um, yeah, as you said, over $24 million during the last cycle to run in a house race. I mean, you know, those are sorts of numbers you really, really very rarely hear. Um, and I think she has something like five or $7 million left over. I mean, the, you know, as you wisely point out that the race that she just ran in was, was a bit of a squeaker. It was, um, you know, redistricted orange County. It was a, um, you know, what I think a lot of people would say was a reddish seat. Um, and she won, but she obviously had to spend considerably, uh, to secure that victory. So she doesn't have a ton. I mean, by, by anyone else's standards, having five or seven million dollars left over is a ton of money. Um, but compared to the twenty five million that she brought in, it's you know, it's it's not a, a ton, I suppose. 
but yeah, she is certainly someone who has a, a, a real panache for fundraising, especially with small dollar donors, um, and has built a national profile very quickly. And, you know, she's going to blow those numbers out of the water in the next 18 months. I mean, there's just no question about that, that we're going to be, <laughs> we're going to be seeing some eye watering figures coming out of this race. And, and she will be uh, probably the, at the front of the pack in terms of the amount of money she can raise. Well, there was an opportunity for Feinstein to step down in 2018 when she was 85 years old and when she ran for her current term, which, of course, is up in 2024. There was a challenge from Kevin DeLeon that was fairly successful, although, as your article points out, the Democratic establishment weighed in and sort of cut him off at the knees and supported her. He, of course, is a dead man walking on the uh, Los Angeles Council, having been caught on tape making racist jokes about colleagues and their children and he's the only one that's refused to resign others have had caught on the same conversation have resigned so he's a sort of as i say a dead man walking but i was really struck though by how no sooner had feinstein got re-elected to the senate you had the kavanaugh hearings and there's no way in the world that she can't take responsibility in many ways, if anybody can, for the fact that Brett Kavanaugh is on, on the Supreme Court. I mean, is that a fair statement, do you think, to blame her more than anybody? I think that she I mean, I think that she bears a lot of responsibility in the situation. And actually, you know, it, it, it happened before Election Day. So it was one of these things where um, it was a couple of weeks beforehand. And I think the details only kind of began trickling out, um, you know, close to Election Day and thereafter. But, you know, the fact that she had received this letter from Christine Blasey Ford alleging sexual misconduct by Brett Kavanaugh um, in July and just sat on it, didn't didn't tell her colleagues in the Senate, didn't go to the, you know, didn't go to the press with it, didn't do anything, um, didn't go to the FBI. I mean, these are, you know, the, the sort of like very regular steps that you would take in an investigation, certainly given given the, you know, the, the political valence of this fight. I mean, it, it was so important, obviously, in the run to that election. And and that decision, I think, you know, they're there in California politics has been, you know, uh, grumbling for a long time about, you know, whether she's too old, that she doesn't have it anymore, that she's in declining health. This has kind of been an open secret for a while. But that was the first thing that really, like, made it sort of it became sort of intolerable for de Democrats at that point that it was like, what was she doing? Uh, how did she botch this so badly? I mean, the FBI never really looked into that uh, even still. Right. I mean, you know. And obviously Kavanaugh makes it through. And then, you know, that's <laughs> that's bad enough. And then she outdoes herself by by leaps and bounds on uh, two years later when Amy Coney Barrett comes up for nomination. And, and and, you know, that I think was that was really the last straw, I think, for a lot of Democrats. It was just hard to watch. But, um, yeah, you got you could make a strong case that, you know, two of these Trump appointees on the Supreme Court might not get there if uh, if, you know, Feinstein isn't isn't in that position, isn't, you know, in that uh, incredibly powerful position on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Well, in the case of uh, Amy Coney Barrett, I think she voted against it, but she did hug her colleague, Lindsey Graham, who led the charge to ramrod her through just shortly after uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, just in the last waning months of Trump's presidency, or waning weeks of Trump's presidency. Yeah, exactly. Really, in the waning, in the waning days, I mean, this she was... Uh, Justice Barrett got through, I think, on October 26th, you know, so we're talking not even two weeks before I mean, that election day. And again, there were a lot of 
Senate Democrats and staffers and insiders who were totally befuddled by the approach, that there wasn't more of an attempt to stall the the, uh, the process, that there wasn't more of an attempt to do what, what Mitch McConnell had done in a similar position just a handful of years prior with the Merrick Garland appointment. And, um, you know, it's, it's, again, one of those things, it was just people knew that it was bad. People knew that there, that she wasn't doing well, that she was, you know, at a point where it was hard to trust her with some of these things. And then when you see her hugging Lindsey Graham on, uh, on television and complimenting him for one of the best run hearings she's ever seen, you know, that's the, the groans from these democratic strategists and fundraisers could be, you know, heard around the world at that point. I mean, that was a, that, that was just a, a, a moment where the frustration really boiled over. And did anybody try to weigh in on her and point out that there are means by which they could have delayed Amy Coney Barrett? Because as you point out, it was days before the clock ran out on Trump. Yeah, I'm not a procedural expert on this, but I do know from talking to some people who know better than I do that there was this feeling that, um, you know, it was a tough position, but there were a lot of stones that were left unturned. So, you know, maybe there is no way to stop this uh, nomination for going through, but there certainly were things that could have been tried that weren't tried. And I think that, uh, you know, there was just a ton of frustration there and uh, about how that went. And, and, you know, now, now we, now we see the impact of it. I mean, right away, right. I mean, those, those Trump appointees made their presence felt on the court immediately. Uh, And, you know, we're sort of living with the aftermath of that now and, and for the very foreseeable future. Well, there's a, you can definitely make a strong case about, Brett Kavanaugh and the and the letter from Blasey Ford, which languished for a couple of months, <clears throat> and those couple of months would have made a huge difference had it happened right away, because you recall when it finally came out, the press were frantically trying to follow it down, and the FBI made some ridiculous and perfunctory investigation, but they ran out of time. But every day that they were probing his history a university and et cetera, they were coming up with more and more stuff. So had they had two months more to look into his background and find more smoking guns, I think he would have been toast. Do you think that's a reasonable um, speculation? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's, uh, yeah, I think, I think without a doubt, if you had <laughs> yeah, seen the, the investigative powers of, of the government put to this stuff, you, we would have found out more. I mean, that, that was, I, I think that that's a, that's a near certainty. So what explains her behavior then? Why is she, uh, in the name of bipartisanship, helping the other side? For what purpose? I mean, was she always this way or did she just become more and more, I don't know what the right word is, but more and more malleable in her old age? Yeah, I think, you know, I think in, in a lot of ways, the sort of political terrain shifted under her feet a little bit. And, you know, she's just a, a creature of a bygone era in a lot of ways. And, and I think, you know, we can look back to her her time in, in San Francisco. Um, obviously, she rose in, in an environment that was a very politically contentious time after the uh, the killings of Mayor Moscone and, and Harvey Milk in San Francisco. You know, that was that was really what got her got her political career back on its feet. She, she was her, her political career had effectively dead ended at that point. And she came back into politics in San Francisco at a time when you had this, you know, this very aggressive right wing uh, uh, political force that, that was kind of in a lot of ways represented by the SFPD uh, who had killed two of these, you know, literally assassinated two of these uh, left wing politicians. I mean, one of them being much more of a figurehead for the left and Harvey Milk than than the other. But 
Um, you know, she was brought in basically to, to, you know, bring down the temperature and to sort of try to figure out a way to bridge the gap between these two parties. Um, and and that was her, you know, that was her bread and butter. That was she, what she was known for. And she, you know, in, in, in essence, did kind of succeed. Uh, the political climate in San Francisco at that period did sort of cool off a bit. But then, you know, at the at the national level and in the Senate, the, the, the political reality changed drastically. And so, you know, she's someone who was holding on to this very outmoded notion of the Senate and these, you know, these institutional rules and traditions and this sort of, you know, the sort of gentlemen's agreements that, that predominate there. And it just doesn't represent the political reality of America in 2023, even a little bit, not in 2018 and, you know, not even before that. So, you know, that's the challenge of having these exceptionally old politicians is that um, a lot of times, you know, they they, they come of age in, a, in, a, in an era that's totally unlike our current one and, and makes them ill-suited to, to deal with the political realities of the day. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Alexander Salmon, going back to the challenges that are waiting in the wings, one of whom, Katie Porter, has jumped the gun and announced she's running for Dianne Feinstein's seat in 2024, even though Feinstein herself has not resigned or said or said she's stepping down. You also mentioned that Congresswoman Barbara Lee has been talking to her colleagues that, and saying she intends to run, but she's holding off now because of the floods here in California and waiting for a better time to make an announcement. And Adam Schiff has clearly been exhibiting the fact that he's peeved at Katie Porter because he, I think he thought he had this one wrapped up. Didn't he? He met with Feinstein back in December, was it, to more or less tell her politely that he was thinking about running? Right, right, absolutely. And he, and you know, he's been raising money like a phenom himself. I mean, he's 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 right up there with Katie Porter in in terms of his his fundraising haul was I think twenty four twenty five million dollars last cycle, and he's in a safe seat in Burbank. I mean, he didn't even have to spend that money, so. That's someone with another a substantial war chest who certainly has designs on <laughs> on that seat as well. But there are others, aren't there, that might have designed this? Congressman Rokana, the U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services, Javier Becerra. He possibly might want to run as well. Eric Swalwell, what, has he made any noises about it? He ran for president, after all. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. He's a name to keep on that list. San Francisco Mayor London Breed is a name to keep on that list. I mean, the the list is going to be it's going to be long. Uh, the, the 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 opportunities to move up in the California Democratic Party are are few and far between. And you know, the last senator to to be added to the roster was uh, Alex Padilla, who was appointed by um, uh, the governor, right? So that that never even went to an election. It's very very rare to have these opportunities to run for a seat that's there's where there's no incumbent. And so I think you're going to see. Basically, anyone with a, with even a hint of political ambition in, in California at least consider throwing their hat in the ring, or at least talk about it. Um, and those names you mentioned are are certainly worth worth keeping an eye on. Um, it's you know the whole sort of drama of the of the Democratic Party nationally and all of its various factions is probably going to be on display in essence in this race because you'll see moderates, you'll see conservatives, you'll see progressives, you'll see Bernie progressives and Warren progressives. Um, I think everyone's going to try to take a bite at the apple, and uh, and it should be a, a <laughs> very competitive, very crowded uh, sure. field. It's all said and done. Well, I think that uh, Rokana has said that he'd step aside if uh, Barbara Lee announced. So maybe that's yeah. one less in the mix. I, but I tell you, I I wonder. Well, well he's uh, we'll see. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
Well, I thank you for joining us, Alexander Salmon. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Alexander Salmon, who's a politics writer at Slate, who has previously written for Mother Jones, The New Republic, and The American Prospect. And his latest article at Slate is The California Feeding Frenzy for Dianne Feinstein's Senate seat just started with a bang. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the brazen hypocrisy of the new House Republicans who decry deficits, but whose first act was to add $100 billion to the deficit in what has become a GOP tradition from Reagan to Bush Sr. to Bush Jr. to Trump, all of whom ran up the deficit and the debt. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Thomas Kahn, who has worked in Congress for 33 years, where he served as a staff director and chief counsel of the House Budget Committee and played a critical role in a number of budget negotiations, including Simpson-Bowles, the Biden Talks, the Super Committee, the successful balanced budget agreement of 1997, and the enactment of the Affordable Care Act. He is a fellow at the Center for the Study of Congress and the Presidency at American University and a partner in the Cormac Group, and he has an article at the Los Angeles Times, House Republicans' First Order of Business, Balloon, the $31 trillion National Debt. Welcome to Background Briefing, Thomas Kahn. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Thomas. And obviously, the first order of business of the new House, which was to cut the $80 billion that was allocated to improve the IRS's collection abilities uh, in the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. They left about $8 billion in for improving the outdated technology at the IRS. But nevertheless, that was a pretty shocking revelation that essentially they're giving a gift to tax cheats and corporations and wealthy individuals who don't want to pay their fair share of taxes. But you have also uh, pointed out they also passed something else, a new rule called CutGo which right. you think could cause even more damage. So tell us about CutGo and PayGo, which it replaced. Sure. So um, there was a rule, a longstanding rule in the House uh, called PayGo, which actually that was short for pay as you go. And under that rule, um, if the House were to do anything in terms of cutting spending, sorry, increasing spending, or cutting taxes, the rule said you've got to pay for it. So if you cut taxes uh, for certain individuals by $50 billion, then you had to either raise taxes somewhere else by $50 billion, or you had to cut spending by $50 billion. Similarly, if you 
increased spending by $50 billion, you had to pay for it either by raising taxes by that amount or cutting spending somewhere else, so that the impact on the deficit was zero. What the Republicans are doing is quite uh, interesting and sort of Alice in Wonderland-ish. On the one hand, they they espouse loyalty to the notion of deficit reduction and throw up their hands at growing debt. At the same time, they pass this new rule cut called CUTGO, which replaces PAYGO. What CUTGO says is you can cut all the taxes in the world, trillions of dollars in taxes for the wealthiest, and you don't have to pay for it. You can add $3 trillion in deficit by cutting taxes, and you don't have to pay a nickel. So it's replacing a good rule that protected the deficit from going up with a bad rule that is an, an incentive to add to the deficit. So the problems are twofold. One, frankly, is the hypocrisy of this new Republican majority um, in claiming they care about the debt. And two is the actual damage that they're going to do to the deficit and the debt. So how do you explain the fact that McCarthy, for example, he's, he prides himself on being a small businessman. He owned a yogurt shop in uh, Bakersfield, and presumably he knows how to balance the household budget. And as a business, small businessman, he knows how to balance their small business budget. So what they're doing with Cutgo makes no economic sense. It's reckless, to say the least. So why are they doing that if they must know that this sort of defies the basic laws of economics? Well, you know, this goes back, this goes back uh, many decades. Uh, Republican philosophy, it goes back to, um, and I'm showing my own age here, the um, Ronald Reagan, and we had something called supply-side economics. Uh, we uh, run under President Reagan, Republicans passed mammoth tax cuts, but they said it'll pay for itself because by cutting taxes, it's going to stimulate the economy, create new jobs, and add revenue. You know, it's kind of like you can go out, you can go on a huge uh, a vacation costing thousands of dollars, and somehow you don't have to pay for it. Well, in the same way, they said you don't; these tax cuts pay for themselves; they're free. Well, that's never worked out. The CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, the Joint Tax Committee will tell you that doesn't work. In the same way, cutting taxes now doesn't pay for itself; it adds to the deficit. So. They use the argument of supply-side economics. In truth, I think they care much more about cutting taxes than about adding to the deficit. I think that's their first priority is cutting taxes for their friends. And their donors. Well, and those are their friends, exactly. Right. <laughs> well, their friends and donors. I, in my mind, they're, they're quite synonymous. Right. So let's then go through the history a little bit here. You mentioned Ronald Reagan passing huge tax cuts while increasing defense spending, which expanded the deficit. Now, at the time, his budget director, David Stockman, blew the whistle and said this was crazy. And they, you recall, they took him behind the woodshed to have him uh, recant. And then President George W. Bush swelled the deficit by adding trillions of dollars of red ink uh, over a decade. And then when you were working in the House Budget Committee as the staff director at the time, in the 1990s under Bill Clinton, yes, you actually turned things around. So tell us about what you did then. Well, it was really an interesting time uh, because um, um, at Re- 
interestingly, and it shows a very different time. In 1997, Democrats and Republicans actually got together. And if you, and if you can believe it, Newt Gingrich was Speaker. Uh, John Kasich was Chairman of the House Budget Committee. Uh, and House Senate Republicans and Democrats, along with the Clinton administration, sat down and hammered out a seven-year budget that reduced the deficit uh, and imposed spending and tax uh, limitations. And um, thanks to that agreement, it was a very hard-fought agreement, and frankly, everybody had to give up something in order in order to get it done. Um, but the result was we had four years of surpluses. It's hard to believe now when we're we're having you know three trillion dollar three trillion that's with a T trillion dollar deficits and a thirty one trillion dollar national debt. But we had four years of surpluses, and I'll tell you, I'll never forget when George Bush was uh, elected president. His people, his uh, staff, his cabinet, they were worried we were going to pay down the debt too quickly. And I'm not making that up. And they said, what are we going to do with all these surpluses? We're going to have to spend it because we don't want to pay down too much debt too quickly. Well, I will give them credit for one thing. They solved that problem. We didn't pay down too much debt too quickly. To the contrary, we added huge deficits in debt thanks to their tax cuts uh, and some spend, and spending increases on defense and a, and a drug plan. Um, and they left uh, Barack Obama with, with a big mess. And um, it's unfortunate because the PAYGO rule that was in effect in the 90s that we enforced um, was overturned. And uh, and then we had to live with the legacy of that. And a part of the running up the deficit, as George W. Bush did, was, of course, you mentioned uh, that that was Medicare Advantage, right, that they passed this outrageous bill where the government can't bargain for drug costs. And it was a massive gift to Big Pharma. Well, there was that, and and there was also a Medicare prescription drug plan that they added as well, mm-hmm. um, and the combination more the more the the drug plan, even the Medicare Advantage, but both of them did did swell the deficit along with defense increases, right. and um, so um, you know, I mean, what's unfortunate, and you know, you, you mentioned earlier my history working on Simpson Bowles, the Super Committee, um, uh, the Biden budget negotiations is uh, I can remember so many times when we came close to having an agreement with Republicans on some serious deficit reduction. But ultimately, every one of those negotiations fell apart for one reason alone. The one reason was that in each case, Republicans were refusing to raise any taxes, even one penny. Democrats came to the table and were offering some, frankly, some both pol- some politically very, very sensitive spending cuts, um, but Republicans would never agree to raise taxes because, sadly, that is their number one priority. But their other, it's not necessarily their priority, but the results of their actions are that if you just, you, we've just gone down the record. Under Republican President Ronald Reagan, they blew up the deficit. Yeah. It yeah. added to the debt under his successor yeah. George H. W. Bush. They blew up the budget and increased the deficit and debt. And then under George W. Bush, the same thing happened, and under Donald Trump, the same thing happened. He gave massive tax cuts and blew up the deficit and the debt. So I, I, there's I agree the record. With everything you said, I, there is a record, but I actually want to say something positive about one of those presidents you mentioned. And it's George Herbert Walker Bush. He actually, in 1990, agreed to a, a budget plan 
hammered out with Democrats that raised taxes. And uh, it was a very responsible plan. And uh, and he agreed to it and he stuck to it. And it cost him the election in 1992. So of, a, of all those presidents that you that you mentioned, uh, the only Republican president who actually did something about the deficit, Herbert Walker Bush, was defeated um, because he violated the cardinal rule that, that you cannot raise taxes if you're a Republican. That was when he said, uh, read my lips, no new taxes. Exactly. Right? Yes, that's exactly right. right. And he had a budget director named Dick Darman, uh, who became the, the bet noir of the Republican Party because he supported and, and helped to write this this budget deal. And it was a very fair deal. And once again, people, you know, the reality is, and, you know, Republicans, um, you know, they, they want to have their cake and eat it, too. They want to talk about deficit reduction. But uh, but they're unwilling to do they they only see one side of the balance sheet. The one side of the balance sheet is spending. And they are correct that spending needs to be put under some control. I mean, we we do have a spending problem. I mean, we just have to acknowledge it. Um, And if we want to continue spending, and there are a lot of reasons for that. We have the uh, retirement of the baby boomers. Um, That's expensive. That's why Social Security and Medicare are going up. We have health care costs and entitlements. Uh, Health care costs are growing faster than uh, than inflation and faster than the economy. Um, So that's expensive. Uh, So we we have we we have to address this one way or another. Um, But you can't do that without also adding additional revenue. And Republicans are unwilling to do that. The irony is not only unwilling to do that, they want to cut taxes. There's one other thing that they did, by the way, um, on their first day of of work after passing um, after uh, electing uh, Kevin McCarthy. As part of the rule for Cutco, they also require a supermajority in order to pass tax increases. So tax cuts, thank you very much. You can do it all you want. But now it requires 60% uh, of the House in order to vote for a tax increase, not 51. The House is a majority institution, but for tax increases, they've decided to, to change that. And then well, the last they, thing they're doing, and then there's one other thing they're doing, they are resuscitating this rule called dynamic scorekeeping. And it goes back to something we were just talking about uh, a couple minutes ago that, that Ronald Reagan started. The basic thesis of dynamic scorekeeping is, one, once again, that if you cut taxes, you'll stimulate the economy um, in such a great way that it will pay for itself or pay for part of itself. Um, it, it's It's a concept that has only um, limited legitimacy, uh, but they are imposing that on the nonpartisan professional congressional budget office uh, in order to come up with new numbers that will um, uh, achieve their their ultimate goals, which is, once again, large tax cuts. So given the damage that they've already done literally on their Mm. first day by gutting the IRS's funding, which was increased under the IRA, and now in adopting CutGo and getting rid of PayGo, and then you just mentioned this requirement of a supermajority to uh, raise taxes, meaning that's completely off the table, and obviously they're obsessed with this idea, but it does serve the plutocracy, doesn't it? Isn't it in a broad sense what we're talking about here in the United States is a question, or maybe it's even a struggle between democracy and and plutocracy, and the question is, are we in a some kind of second 
gilded age, given the increasing income inequality. And during COVID, the billionaires multiplied their wealth enormously. And we, you know, we now have prominent people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk in the headlines, particularly Elon Musk now that he's got into politics by spending $44 billion to own the libs. This is pretty much on the minds of a lot of Americans. Do you see it in that broader context, Thomas? Sure. Uh, Absolutely. And and I I, I think you've put your finger on something very scary about uh, where our economy is headed. Um, because, um, as you've, I think, very nicely articulated, um, the last several years have been very good to people at the top um, whose wealth has increased significantly, sometimes exponentially, uh, where middle-class incomes have been more or less stagnant um, or even gone down in some cases. And that is not healthy for the country. It's not healthy for the economy. It breeds um, frustration and dissatisfaction, understandably, and um, um, I think it's very worrisome. Uh, things started to improve, um, I think, in the first two years of the Biden administration. Actually, interestingly, some of the recovery money, uh, doing things like passing the earned income tax, not just the earned income tax credit, but the child tax credit, reducing poverty, um, helped to alleviate that to some degree. Um, but I, I worry that we're now headed in the wrong direction. And, and by the way, there is one mammoth, you know, t- talking about elephant in the room that we haven't even discussed, which is the the catastrophe of the debt ceiling, which is coming up. And I think that probably the richest irony of all is that Republicans are driving up the deficit in debt through their tax cuts. And then, thank you very much, when when we've hit the debt ceiling, in part because of their their actions, they're going to refuse to uh, to raise it. And um, and the consequences for the country and financial markets um, are unimaginable. So if that's inevitable, and it looks as if it is, that that's where we're heading with this radical right house where the tail wags the dog, the Freedom Caucus basically have gotten McCarthy to sell his soul to the point where there's nothing left. And essentially the head of the Freedom Caucus really is running the house and they seem determined to do this what are the is there a workaround there i mean there you is. think first there actually the, is there tell is. us about it yes um and there is something in the in the house rules and probably if if your if your listeners are not asleep yet they 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 will be very soon there is something called a discharge petition that nobody's ever heard of but Basically, the way a discharge petition works is that if you can get a majority of the House to sign a document, that will force a bill to go to the floor of the House. And um, every Democrat will sign a discharge petition. And if we can get four Republicans, five Republicans to sign it, then we can put a debt ceiling bill on the floor and it will pass. As far as I can see, that is the only way to get a debt ceiling increase adopted because Kevin McCarthy cannot afford uh, to, on the one hand, save his speakership and at the same time put a debt ceiling increase on the floor. Um, Using the discharge petition is the one way, at least that I can see, around this uh, conundrum. 
Well, we'll have to stay tuned, and, and it's good to know that uh, the full faith and credit of the United States is not going to be recklessly destroyed, which they right. seem determined to do yep. without some means to stop them. I thank you for joining us, Thomas Carnot. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I, I uh, look forward to staying in touch, and please feel free to call any time. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Thomas Kahn, who worked in Congress for 33 years, where he served as staff director and chief counsel of the House Budget Committee and played a critical role on a number of budget negotiations, including Simpsons, Bowles, the Biden talks, the Super Committee, the successful balanced budget agreement of 1997, and the enactment of the Affordable Care Act. And he's a fellow at the Center for the Study of Congress and the Presidency at American University and a partner at the Cormac Group. And he has an article at the Los Angeles Times, House Republicans' first order of business ballooned the $31 trillion national debt. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the case of a six-year-old boy in custody in Virginia for shooting his school teacher, which unfortunately is not an unusual occurrence. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Joshua Horwitz, who is the Dana Fiedler Professor of Practice and the co-director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Solutions. He has spent more than three decades working on gun violence prevention issues and is the author of Guns, Democracy, and the Insurrectionist Idea. Welcome to Background Briefing, Joshua Horwitz. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And obviously, there's been a lot of attention to the shooting of a schoolteacher by a six-year-old in Newport News, Virginia. But there's an alarming article in in today's Washington Post that basically says this is not an anomaly. Uh, the title of the article is "A Six-Year-Old Is Accused of Shooting Someone at School." He isn't the first, and it goes on to point out that there have been many, many similar shootings involving six-year-olds pulling the trigger on six-year-olds, and that since 1999, most shootings at K-12 campuses, 69%, happened at high schools, according to an analysis by the Washington Post. And among the 62 at elementary schools, 49 were committed by adults or teens. In at least 11 cases, though, the person who pulled the trigger was no older than 10. And uh, most of these children had brought loaded guns from home. So what are the solutions here? I mean, they're, they're, once again, they, they're talking about hardening schools, which seems sort of beside the point. What, what about parental responsibility? I mean, how does it strike you as somebody that deals with this, yeah, this uh, scourge? This isn't a hardening our schools issue. This is just, you know, this, this is an issue of parents 
uh, and adults not exercising responsibility. This is completely something that's in control of parents. We've seen an unprecedented rise in gun ownership, uh, and there are people who um, are, some of them are first-time gun owners, some of them are gun are, are, are people who don't lock their firearms up, um, and you know there, there's a large number of households who have firearms that do not lock them up, and that's just a recipe for disaster. And it's a six-year-old doesn't have the mental capacity to understand what's going on here, um, and that means that it has to be the responsibility of the parents. And if you feel that the the, the most the best thing to do is not to bring a gun into your home at all. But if you feel you must bring a gun into your home, it is imperative that you lock that firearm and that you keep it out of the hands of people who are not responsible with them. And that includes six-year-olds. And and there's just no other substitution. There's no other substitute for that. Um, And, and that's, you know, that's just the way it is. We have to ensure that if you're a gun owner, you do not allow people, especially kids, to have access to your firearms. So are there laws in place? I mean, if this is yet another horrible shooting, this time involving a six-year-old shooting his teacher, and, you know, obviously we have the usual hand-wringing and calls for gun safety reform, etc., and more often than not, nothing happens. But in this case... Is there anything that can be done in terms of making prosecution of parents more severe or at least making them recognize their responsibility? I mean, what can be done here? It's very clear. States with strong child access prevention laws that that require guns be stored in a safe manner rather than just saying, hey, there's a problem. There's, you know, if if some states say, well, if 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 your gun gets into a child's hand, you're in trouble if you do it recklessly, rather than have that approach. The states that require guns to be stored locked in a safe manner have lower rates of suicide, of adolescent suicide, and can prevent unintentional gun injuries, including homo- and homicides and mass shootings. And so we know that, that you must lock your firearms, and, and states should adopt laws that require that. And if you don't, there should be a bright line test. If your firearm is not locked and a child gets that gun, you are responsible. I can tell you that I live in Virginia and the law in Virginia is, is, is somewhat permissive. There is a bill that says it's unlawful to leave a firearm around recklessly, but it does not require you to lock your firearms. And it's almost impossible to prosecute anybody under that, under that law because recklessly is a very high standard. What we need is a bright line law for parents. Lock your guns or you're responsible. So what do we know about how this six-year-old boy got hold of the gun that shot the school teacher in Newport News, Virginia? You know, because of the age of the, because of the, age of the child, we don't know, as, 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 at least as of this morning, hadn't, hadn't, we don't know as much as we need to know. But what we do know is that the gun was purchased uh, lawfully. Um, the Virginia State Police confirmed that. Um, and and, and the, the point of this, though, is even lawful purchases, bringing a gun into your home um, without requiring that gun to be stored safely is deadly. 
And there are, you know, there are the guns that are often brought to school. They're not necessarily what we term illegal firearms. They're, pe- they're guns that people are putting around their house, oftentimes because they feel, not based in fact, it will make them safer. And those guns are the ones that are used almost exclusively by school shooters, um, by, by, by young kids, in, like in this situation. Um, but if this, is, you know, this is a different problem than gun trafficking or background checks. This is something that every gun owner, especially lawful gun owners, um, who I think do want to abide by the law, need to practice. And to the extent that they don't practice, they need to be reminded by the law that it's required. And we need these types of laws to safeguard our children. Well, the NRA apparently used to be an organization that focused on teaching young people how to use firearms safely, but then they became a kind of political right-wing lobbying group. So is there any organization out there that has done what the NRA used to do or is doing what the NRA used to do? There, are, I know that there are individual firearm instructors out there who are very responsible for remind people to lock their firearms. Um, the, as you mentioned, um, many of the gun, quote-unquote, gun rights organizations have become much more focused on politics and raising money than they are on actually teaching safety skills. Um, and this is an, and and are actively involved in preventing these types of laws that we've just been discussing from passing. And so if you're, you know, you're not teaching safety skills or you're not serious about it and you're actively against, um, and and you're actively against these, um, these laws, that's kind of a recipe for disaster. And um, there are plenty of, there are plenty of great firearms instructors around the country. but we don't, you know, a lot of that gets lost these days um, in the in the politics of it. We have a country, for better or for worse, that allows um, firearms ownership. The Supreme Court has guaranteed that. But there has to be responsibility with that. There has to be responsibility. And I would hope, I, I would hope that after this, even these gun rights organizations uh, will support um, uh, stronger child access prevention laws, although... Uh, I, I doubt that will actually happen. Well, it's not a surprise, surely, Josh Horwitz, that kids, young kids, would find a gun exciting because they watch TV and people are always pointing guns and movies and TV shows. They're usually the, the instrument that solves the problem, which is in itself is kind of socially irresponsible. So it would seem to me that you know, the idea that a young six-year-old could find a gun and think it's really exotic and it's a terrifying prospect to have a little kid like that waving a gun around, isn't it? It is. And it's a terrifying prospect, and they do see it in the media all the time, but they also more and more are seeing it in their home with people carrying and, and waving guns and having them stored unsecurely and seeing them in their home. It's, it's much more normalized, especially around handguns than it was 20 or 30 years ago. But here's the other thing: the same, they're watching the same, they're watching the same movies in in Japan and in Scotland and Australia. But those six-year-olds don't have access to firearms, not the way they do in the United States. And so, 
Sure. I wish that our media was less violent and less resolved on solving problems with guns. It's unrealistic. But the problem is, is that unlike the countries I mentioned, our laws allow basically six-year-olds to have access to firearms. And that's a problem. And that's why we have these situations. So given that there's been an uptick in gun ownership, do we know exactly how many more households have guns, particularly now with all of these states passing open carry laws? And apparently throughout the pandemic, there was an uptick in buying guns. And perversely, every time there's a mass shooting, when an enormous amount of outrage is expressed, the opposite result seems to be that people go out and buy guns. So what do we know about the increase in gun ownership and how many more households have guns and, by extension, have irresponsible parents who are not keeping them safely locked? Well, the rise in, in gun sales was, was dramatic. Um, during the pandemic, uh, probably because of a lot of insecurities, um, people bought more and more firearms, some of the highest levels of firearms ever firearm purchases ever recorded. It's a little harder to translate that into how many new homes have guns. Um, but but many, um, and I'm sure over the next couple of years that data will will become clear. Um, but many more homes have guns. Many more, you know, many people became first time gun owners, which means that the risk of firearms, uh, the 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 risk of unsecured firearms spread. So I don't have the number of households to put right now in front of me, but I do know that the number of sales. Now some of those people are, are people stockpiling guns and buying more firearms. Um, but other people are first-time gun owners, which means that you're spreading the risk. Because we do know this: a gun with a, fire, a home with a gun in it is at a higher risk of homicide and a higher risk of suicide. And so, more guns means more death, um, and that's what we're seeing, seeing played out in America in the last two years. So, what happens to the kids, though, these six-year-olds, in terms of the law? I mean, the idea that. Apparently, this boy uh, who shot the teacher had been arrested and he held on a $50,000 bond, charged in juvenile court with assault of an unlawful possession of a firearm, and he's wearing an orange jumpsuit. Uh, yeah, I'm not a juvenile justice expert. Uh, I can tell you this, though, that it's very difficult to hold young children criminally responsible, nor as a society should we balance the responsibility for gun ownership on six-year-olds. These are responsibilities that should be for parents. Parents should be responsible and held liable for these types of things and prosecuted if necessary. Um, and um, the idea that we're that this is turning into a juvenile justice issue is ridiculous. This should be fully the responsibility of the parents and not a six-year-old. I don't know anything about this particular six-year-old. Um, but we shouldn't presume that this is this 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 is, this, this child is somehow unredeemable or anything like that. Um, Six-year-olds do not have the mental status to understand what they're doing, and that falls on parents. And that's why we need laws holding parents accountable. So in general, though, since you work uh, and you've worked for decades, Josh, in trying to uh, bring about gun safety reform in the country and prevent gun violence, there's a lot of concern now that this new house is run by fairly radical right-wing kind of bomb throwers, the so-called Freedom Caucus, and they seem to have a lot of influence. Are we likely to see 
even more kind of reactionary gun laws. And I mean, recently Biden launched another initiative after the latest mass shooting. So what's your expectation in terms of the politics of gun safety reform? Well, the new Republican majority has been focused on a lot of other issues, investigating the president, you know, investigating the criminal justice organizations, uh, the FBI, around, you know, and other law, law enforcement agencies in Washington and uh, ostensibly now have said they want to start cutting, cutting budgets. I have not heard or seen much evidence that there's going to be movement on firearms. However, it would not surprise me if they looked at a bill, for instance, to grant um, reciprocity for people with concealed carry permits so that you know they could go across state lines, things like that. So it would not surprise me if they passed or tried to pass um, a, um, a, a bill that um, made it easier to carry or possess firearms. I will say that, um, fortunately, we have a Senate who's not interested in any of that. And so I don't think for the next two years there were of any real threats of rollbacks at the federal level. Um, I will, uh, one point to be concerned about, though, one caveat is that after these terrible shootings in Buffalo and Uvalde, we passed the Sacred Communities Act, and that well, a big piece of that is funding um, extremist protection and order implementation, community violence interventions, and I would hate to see those types of things cut um, by this new Republican Congress. So there's some risk. Um, I don't think the policies are going to change, but I am concerned about some of the purse, uh, purse string issues that we might be facing. Well, Joshua Horwitz, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Always a pleasure. Happy to come back at any time. Well, thank you, Josh. And again, I've been speaking with Joshua Horwitz, who's the Dana Fiedler Professor of the Practice and the Co-Director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Solutions. He has spent more than three decades working on gun violence prevention issues and is the author of Guns, Democracy, and the Insurrectionist Idea. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Disappeared by hand.